Welcome to Stories. I'm your host, Sean Ketchum. In this season, we're exploring entrepreneurship in Nashville. In each episode, I speak with a different founder to uncover their story and how that led to them starting their company. And today's guest is Travis Gravett. Travis is the Vice President of Business Development at Nisolo, which makes handcrafted leather shoes and other leather goods. However, Travis is probably best known for being the founder of No Think Act, a nonprofit he started to serve the needs of impoverished communities in Africa. In the interview, we learn about Travis's journey, why he decided to start a nonprofit right out of college, and why he ended up leaving the nonprofit world to work in fashion. If you've been listening to the podcast but have not yet been to the website, you should really check it out. On the website, you'll find original photos I took of all of the guests I've interviewed, as well as show notes and links to social media. The show notes include quotes and links to things mentioned in the podcast, such as books, organizations, people, music, etc., etc., etc. So please do check it out. I personally prefer the desktop version of the website, but it is mobile-friendly. And the web address is thestoriespodcast.com. Oh, and one other thing, I just wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who voted for my South by Southwest panel proposal. It really means a lot. And I'll keep you guys informed in November if the panel made it into the South by Southwest 2018 programming. All right, now with all of this introduction out of the way, let's go ahead and get into this interview. So to that end, please enjoy my conversation with Travis Gravett. I'm sitting here with my good buddy, Travis Gravett, in his home here in Nashville. And we're just kicking it. We're chilling on his couch. We got these little furry ottomans. Is that what you call them? (laughs) Yeah. These kind of furry ottomans. Both of our, we got shoes off, socks on, and we're just hanging out. We've been been catching up um, for a bit before hitting record. It's been a lot of fun, man. It's really good to see you. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Keeping it casual. Yeah, yeah, and glad to have you on the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. Yeah, man, for sure. So we were trying to figure this out earlier. I, I don't know if we came to a conclusion. Did we figure out how we met? Was it through Trevor or we're still it's unsure? A handful of people it could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we got we got several candidates. We got yeah. several candidates. Trevor, but, Trevor's at the top, though. I think it was Trevor's Trevor. at the top. Yeah. And that's um, for for folks uh, that, that may be wondering who that is, Trevor Burbank. He's He's got a co-working space here in town called Refinery, I think is what he's calling it these days. I mean, Trevor's known to, to change the name on stuff. Um, but yeah, shout outs to Trevor. Call me, man. Return my emails. He's <laughs> a good guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a real good guy. All right, man. So let's um, let's talk about the beginnings, dude. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Louisiana, uh, right outside of Baton Rouge, but um, my dad was in the Coast Guard, so we moved every two to four years all over the Gulf Coast. So I lived in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, all over, and mm-hmm. then moved to Nashville for college back cool. in 03. And where were you at for high school? I was in a really small town uh, in Mississippi, north of Biloxi, mm-hmm. Stone High. Wiggins is the name of the town. <laughs> and, and how is that moving, man? Because like, for example, my, my grandfather, he was he was in the army. And I know that my mom moved a good bit growing up. But 
not too much. I know some people move even a lot more. And for, for me, I mean, I grew up in, I moved a good bit around the area, but I grew up outside of Richmond and I lived there until basically college. So I really don't have that experience with kind of bouncing around and how that affects childhood friendships. So can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah. Um, I think overall it was a positive one, at least for me. I know different people who've grown up moving a lot, obviously have different experiences and it definitely can be tough. Uh, fortunately I was really close with my family. I have a younger sister who's now in Nashville and I work with, (laughs) so obviously we're friends and enjoy each other's company, uh, and always have since we were little. So that was really, yeah, I mean, it definitely was tough as far as friends go, but you know, two years or so you start to actually get close friends. Next thing you know, it's like, all right, we're moving to the next place. Mm. So you get good at making friends, but you also get good at leaving, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Don't get too attached, Mm -hmm. but probably can have some effects as far as being able to go deeper. But I think I'm able to catch up and connect with people pretty quickly because of it. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I uh, enjoyed my childhood. And did you keep in touch with any of those friends after the moves? Uh, not, not, I have a few friends that I, that go back to like high school. There's probably a, a hand, there's just a couple, mm-hmm. but, uh, not been Nashville as long as I've lived in one place now. So most of my friends are here and there's a few people I know from high school that I still keep in touch with. My best friend is from high school. Mm-hmm. And how long you been in Nashville for? Going on, this will be 14 years. So wow. I came up here in 03 to finish 03. out college for my last two years of college. Oh, where did you start college at? Uh, I got my associate's degree at a small junior college down in Mississippi and then came up here for to get a bachelor's in music business at MTSU. Oh man, that's yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. That sounds so parallel to my story. I mean, I got my associate's degree. I stayed local um, in Virginia, um, like near my hometown of uh, Richmond. And uh, yeah, stayed local because I wanted to finish out. There was a, a Cisco networking program that it was like a two-year program that people would do in their junior and senior year high school. But I needed to finish Spanish 11th grade. So I, I didn't sign up for the program. And then come senior year, I was like, oh, that looks interesting. So I did it my senior year. I wasn't required to do it for the second year after college. I mean, excuse me, after high school. But it was like, hey, another free year of education, you know. So I pretty much did that. And then I also went to college full time. So I really wasn't able to make the lectures for the Cisco program, but I would uh, study on my own time and then come in and do the exams. But yeah, I went locally and then I uh, got my associate's degree and then I transferred and went to UVA and, and then I got my degree in business as well. So that's that's pretty interesting. And so did you say, sorry, correct me, did you say your degree was in business or music business? It was music business. Music but business. I, also, I minored in, in just business administration, but mm-hmm. yeah, so it's basically a core, a track of a business degree, but with a focus on the music industry. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would do like contract law classes, but you were analyzing and writing music business contracts, you know, and taking copyright law and those types of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, And what was your interest in music business specifically? Uh, well, at the time back then I was playing music myself and enjoyed being around music, but also definitely enjoyed the business aspects of things. And so decided to go to college for, you know, for that track because I figured I might enjoy getting into the music industry and, you know, either 
playing, but also just, I enjoyed being around it. So I liked, mm-hmm. you know, the business aspects that went into managing or, uh, you know, either musicians or bands or label or copyright. Yeah. I was interested in all of that at the time. I'm still around it. That kind of, yeah. obviously, uh, as we'll find out, that's not exactly the track that I took, yeah, but yeah. At, the t- at that moment that really fascinated me and it was great education and still, I think, you know, created a foundation that I built on for the things that came later. Cool. Very cool. Now tell me about you playing music. When did you, when did you first get into playing music? Oh man. Uh, I went from not really ever listening to music and not at all being in the music to, uh, a friend of my parents had bought me a little like miniature guitar when I was pretty little actually. And I had it just laying around for a long time. And I honestly can't even remember what started to get me to want to play it. But then I all of a sudden just really wanted to learn how to play guitar and play this thing. And so I ended up getting, not lessons, but just buying some books and some tapes and actually taught myself and just started playing. Taught yourself how to play the guitar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then played at church and then was in some different bands and then started writing music and graduated high school. So that was like my sophomore year in high school. I started playing guitar. Cool. And was this acoustic or electric? It's both. Both. Started on acoustic, but then eventually you know got the electric for you know it have a massive pedal board and yeah, <laughs> all that <yeah>. stuff <laughs> and at this point were you songwriting at all yeah i mean a little bit yeah and i took some songwriting classes and i enjoyed i enjoyed songwriting and publishing was definitely something i was interested in going into now yeah. now for folks that that don't understand what publishing is in music could you explain that uh it's just the business around songwriting and you know the ownership of the songs from a copyright perspective and you know, basically licensing songs out to a lot of artists, especially in the country music world, don't actually write their own songs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you basically kind of control the copyright to a song and either license it, artists play it, license it to movies, film, different things like that. So publishing is just usually around this, the value of a song and mm-hmm. distributing it through various means. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, but yeah, there's a separate copyright for, and there's separate royalties for publishing versus what folks call the master, which the master is actually the recording itself of a song, which is separate from the publishing, which is the actual songwriting. You can think of it as the the notes to a song and the lyrics. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to speak too detailed anymore. <laughs> okay, it's like okay. over 10 years ago, but yeah, 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 I mean, I think you're on the right track. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. There's the master and then there's actually the publishing rights and yeah. Cool. Now, tell me about the first band that you were in. Oh gosh, um, it was just like just a group of group of high school kids. It was nothing serious. <laughs> it was more mm-hmm. just playing in garages. It was never never anything serious. More like a fun outlet just to write and play. Yeah, play music. Did you guys record a demo or anything? Uh, yeah, we did a few just here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With some local folks. That's cool. Played a few little like local fairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you guys actually trying to like distribute your mu- music to friends, like burn CDs or anything? Uh, no. I mean, not really. Uh-huh. No, no. You guys were just having fun. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't like necessarily like aspirations to try to sign to a label or anything uh-huh. like that. What about future bands? Did you have any of those kind of aspirations with bands post high school? Uh, not really. I mean, I definitely played with folks who were more serious and. Uh, had the privilege of like playing the Bluebird Cafe with uh-huh. a girl who is an aspiring country artist and recording in uh, Quad Studios, which is a pretty 
Oh yeah. Cool studio here in town that a lot of people have recorded in, but it was more just playing with friends. They were, I personally wasn't necessarily trying to be a professional guitarist or anything, mm -hmm. but it was fun at that moment in my life in college. Wasn't much else to do other than play yeah. music and stuff. Yeah, very cool. I used to live pretty close to Quad. Um, my good buddy, Kyle Ginther, he was, I think, the head engineer there for a while. I heard that they either closed Quad down or someone bought it and they rebranded to another name, the Quad. Because there's also a Quad in New York, too. But Oh, okay. Is that true? Do you know anything about that? I honestly don't know. I okay. Just, yeah, we just, when we played the Bluebird, an engineer who was working at Quad heard us and wanted to bring us in. And we did some recordings and some demos and mm -hmm. was working on his portfolio. And it was really cool. I just remember at the time, G-Unit was across the hall recording their albums. So. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It was probably like <laughs> Young Buck and those folks. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah it was 50 fun. Cent. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's cool. It was a pretty, a pretty good while back. This is probably back in like, 2005 or six. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's yeah. a good story. Um, did you meet any of those guys? Uh, no. No, we no. saw them here and you there in the hallway and stuff. You yeah. saw the bling. Yeah, yeah. Got the contact <laughs> high. You yeah, know? Got, got the contact high when they were coming <laughs> the in doors and out of the open room and to go to the bathroom. Smoke clouds come pouring out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny, man. Cool. So, so you studied music business at MTSU. What did you do after college? Um, well, I actually pretty much started a nonprofit right out of school. Yeah. And was kind of inspired from a trip that I took my senior year mm -hmm. to Uganda. And so why the why the change? It sounded like you were pretty interested in, in music business and the music industry. Why start a nonprofit? What was the I mean, you were sort of getting at it with the trip, but why such a why such a shift? Um, kind of was getting a little bit burned out on the music industry. I think if you've been around anybody who's worked in the music industry, it's definitely, yeah, it can be a tough industry to be in for a while. So I think you definitely have to be super, super passionate about it. And not only that, you have to, I think, get the right job in the right place. And so anyways, I had done multiple internships and I enjoyed it, didn't hate it. But as I was getting close to finishing, I realized uh, the music industry probably wasn't the best fit for me long-term. Just realized that it wasn't exactly what I enjoyed the most. And kind of while that was happening, I also... From a young age, I always had a fascination with Africa and always kind of had a des desire to go and kind of serve the underprivileged and volunteer at an orphanage. And so my senior, my winter break at my senior year, which is 2004, decided to go volunteer at an orphanage in Africa somewhere. I didn't really have any connections at that time. And long story short, just actually Googled orphanages in Africa. Um, this was before Africa was quite as like... Uh, uh, I don't know. There wasn't as much awareness of a lot of things that were happening there. And what year was this Pre-Invisible Children, if you're familiar with that organization. Oh, they, yeah, Invisible Children. They they deal with child soldiers. Yeah, so they, they brought a lot of awareness to Uganda and East Africa mm -hmm. and that region. So this is before they, they kind of came out. And so I had never actually even heard of Uganda. And anyways, uh, long story, I met this met this lady through this email, this Google search, sent out an email to probably like 20 different places. And uh, ended up meeting this Ugandan woman who had started an orphanage called Bringing Up to the Family and talked to a guy in California who had actually been out there and built her website. And we never actually talked to her. We just emailed back and forth a few times and ended up flying out there to go volunteer with her, which looking back is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. knowing, so knowing is, what I know now, being so, 21 and just flying out up there by myself to spend about a month in Western Uganda, close to Congo. So was this 
just to clarify, and you may have mentioned this earlier, was this right after you finished college or? No, I was still right. in college. So it was the midpoint of my senior year. So it was okay, Christmas like break. Christmas break. Yeah. Okay. So I got back at one more semester to and I graduated. And you sent out 20 emails. What was the content of that email? <laughs> uh, it was pretty simple. It was basically, hey, I'm a college kid who um, just wants to come out and help any way that I can and serve. And uh, like I see, you know, I researched multiple different orphanages and like programs, you know, and said, I love what you guys are doing. Would love to just come out and yeah, help in any way that I can if you need it. And so, yeah, I got a really good response. A lot of people are like, yeah, we'd love to come have you, have you come out and help volunteer with our program and the work that we're doing. But, uh, when I read Faith's email, it just really, something about it grabbed me and decided that's where I wanted to go. And yeah, that trip, I spent a little over a month out there and, uh, I really changed my life and had a dramatic impact on me and altered the course of my life. So stayed in touch with Faith and the work that she was doing and, and graduated. When I came back, graduated that summer. And over the course of the next year, I bought a bunch of nonprofit for dummy books and like learn started. <laughs> Basically, I finished my degree. I didn't want to switch degrees, but started doing a bunch of learning on my own about how to start and run a nonprofit and uh, started putting together a group of folks to take a team back with me the next year. And so over the course of the end of 2005 and the 2006, put a team together, started a nonprofit and went back the end of 2006 and then kind of jumped into that full time. What year did you graduate from college? 2005? It was May 2005. Yeah. May 2005. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you went over there the first time to the orphanage, what exactly did they have you, did they have you doing? Yeah. So, you know, Faith's organization at that point was really young. She had just started it. So her story, she grew up in Western Uganda in one of the poorest families there and was fortunate to, her mom ended up bringing her into the city and actually, actually out of a big family was one of the only few who was actually able to get educated. And so ended up moving to Kampala, which is the capital and had a great job and actually then moved to Jinjo, which is a smaller town, but had a really good job. And we go back to the village to visit her mother and realize a lot of her peers had died from AIDS and her district mm. where she was at had one of the highest um, AIDS prevalency and, and, rates. And how old would you say, um, just to give folks a picture, when she says her peers had died from AIDS, how old do you think these, these uh, are these women or men? Both. Both. Okay. both how, yeah. How, so how around that time, around? she was probably around 30 and I was okay. really 21. <laughs> okay. So, so a lot of these yeah. people are around the age of 30 dying from AIDS. Yeah. Mid twenties to and up. And so there were, I mean, literally thousands of orphans in her district and, and obviously a lot of other uh, issues related to extreme poverty. So, you know, lack of access to healthcare, lack of education, lack of clean water, lack of a lot of things. So she ended up quitting her job, moving back to her village and starting bringing hope to the family with a focus on caring for widows and orphans and the most vulnerable in her community. And so when I had flown out there, she had a very, very, very rudimentary clinic, uh, if you could even call it that, that she had started. She had one simple little brick uh, two-bedroom like house that she was using as kind of her. She lived there. She had two orphans that she was taking care of full-time who actually lived with her. And she had a really small, like it was kind of a, a small vocational program and like a grass thatched building, about 15 girls that were learning to sew. And then a couple of times a week, she was doing a feeding program with like 50 or 60 kids. Today, it's a massive organization, uh, has a huge medical clinic. Uh, that's amazing. And the, one of the best clinics in the whole district, um, huge agricultural program. 
Uh, they have a partnership with Duke University now with their agricultural program. They have multiple orphanage homes, take care of over 100 plus kids from babies to adolescent. They have a primary school. They have multiple other programs. So it's it's grown tremendously. But back then, yeah, it was just getting started. And so for me, that trip, I had been in kind of third world environments before, but that was I'd never seen extreme poverty on that level. And so the life-changing part of it, I think if I'd have just experienced poverty like that and not necessarily a person like Faith, it probably would have been overwhelming. Been a little bit where it's like, well, I don't even know what to do with this or how to respond. But I was very inspired by Faith and her story and the work she was doing. And so being a young kid out of college, you know, about to graduate college, it was kind of like, I don't really know, you know, I'm not like a, a community development expert or like something like that. So it's like, what I saw was the answer was already in place. She knew what her community needed and was actively trying to help. And I knew that there was a lot of people in the U.S. who would help if they if they could, and they had a way to actually do that. And so a defining moment was, I remember towards the end of my trip, Faith brought me out to where her mother lived and where she grew up, the house there, and it brought me to see their water source. And it was just like a hole, like a, a hole that was dug down at the bottom of a valley. And basically, I remember there was a lady there getting water with her two kids. And there was a cow drinking out of the same like puddle, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, and if cow used the bathroom just up the hill when it rains, all that water just runs down into this open hole that they dug that collected water. So obviously, it's very uh, unsafe drinking water and Basically, that was where her mother and family were still getting their water from. And so I started talking to her, you know, about, okay, well, what would it take just to like fix this one little problem right here? And realized like $1,500, you know, at that point could actually create a shallow well, basically create a way to get water out of the ground that's protected, you know? And I was like, oh, well, I think I could help raise money for that. And so anyways, what ended up doing is starting a nonprofit called No Think Act, and that's no as a knowledge, so K-N-O-W. So... No Think Act, and basically it, it was a crowdfunding platform for specific projects. And so realized, I, you know, I didn't necessarily have to have all the answers. It really became about empowering local leaders like Faith. So somebody like Faith who is local, who knew her own community, knew the needs, and then we would help raise money for those specific needs. And so we launched this platform that basically we put up specific needs in five areas of development. And people would give towards those needs and a hundred percent of the money would go straight to that project. Um, we raised money to operate separately. So yeah, started that, ran that for almost 10 years. It's interesting. I think it brings up a, a conversation you and I had a few years back where um, I think we were talking about that, that 100% model. And I think we were talking about charity water. I think yeah. it came up because I think what you were telling me is you basically independently had that same idea probably well it must have been right around the time they were starting but um i guess they ended up being probably a scale in a bit larger than totally. you so, so yeah, it almost looks course. like oh you maybe copied off them but but i mean is that do you remember that? i don't know if you remember that conversation yeah but. yeah i mean yeah so i mean when we started doing what we were doing it was pre-charity water uh pre-kickstarter mm-hmm. so i mean when we would tell people like i don't even know if we used the term crowdfunding back then we didn't even know how to it was hard because we almost didn't even know how to like tell people about it be like yeah, yeah it's this website we have projects 100 percent of the money goes straight to the project you know you go and give you can give a small gift or a big gift so finally kickstarter came around we're like yeah it's kind of like kickstarter and people were like what they didn't know what we were talking about yeah and then charity water came around and they kind of popularized the 100 percent models so that people were like oh okay like you know that works so yeah i mean i think there's a lot of people at that time you know 
also right after that trip, right after we started, you know, Invisible Children came out and, um, yeah, you know, you just kind of see those movements and momentum and things that happen. And I feel like I've been a part of two of those. The first one, I think at that time there was like an awakening in the nonprofit world of this younger generation that was kind of starting more entrepreneurial type nonprofits that were just kind of a new breed of nonprofit that were different than kind of the American Red Cross or, you know, the YMCA, like what these big kind of ancient great organizations, but just, you know, old guard. And so, yeah, we kind of were a part of that wave of, of all these new nonprofits that were coming out and yeah, you know, we never scaled up to the scale of a charity water, but you know, we were definitely focused in just, you know, really deeply impacting a few small communities, but definitely that's the model that we took and has a lot of benefits. Also has a lot of challenges <laughs> raising your operating budget separately, but believed in it and that's what we did. And yeah, it was really, it was a really fun uh, time in my life and really grateful to do that for a while, have that impact. Cool. And that brings up my next question, which is if folks were donating a hundred percent, excuse me, if folks were donating, say, I want to donate a hundred dollars to this specific project to help this person out. And I know a hundred percent of that money is going to that person in need um, to support them. How were you guys able to then separately raise your operations costs? Because I know you guys got to, you know, you have a staff, you have to pay them salaries. And there's sure. probably office space. How did you guys raise that money? Yeah, we we had what we called our legacy fund. And so that was a fund that went directly to our operational cost. And so, you know, at one point we could tell people, hey, for every dollar that you give us to our legacy fund, we're going to raise $5 through this platform. So we're going to quadruple your money. So it's like, hey, you could give $1,000 to build a well, or you could give $1,000 to our legacy fund. And we're going to leverage that through technology, through our staff, through, you know, these other things we're doing, and we're going to raise $5,000. How, how does that work? So is it, for example, okay, that, that $1,000 goes to your operations, which hypothetically, let's say that covers a portion of someone's salary who then goes out and raises another five. Totally. So four. For, and for us, the majority of it is our website. So, okay. so it's, you know, if you fund our stat, we, you know, we at our peak, you know, we in the US, we had, I think we had like six full time staff. So we were lean, you know, we were never huge. But yeah, it was mostly online. So it, you know, it didn't take a ton of money to, you know, between our six staff and running the website and all that, it didn't take much to keep that going and marketing and, you know, spreading the word. And yeah, we would raise a lot more through it. So yeah, like I said, definitely it's harder to raise. Anybody who's ever done any model like that could attest it's always harder to raise your operational money. Everybody wants to give directly to the project or sure. directly to, you know, the actual work. But the reality is you've got to, you know, you've got to run the organization. You've got to manage those projects, those relationships. And it takes, it takes capital and takes a group of individuals to kind of keep it all going. And, and there are people out there who get that vision and who understand that. Mm -hmm. That's why we called it our legacy fund, because mm -hmm. it was people who wanted to give to something that was going to have a long-term impact. And that was part of their legacy. Mm -hmm. So, And you guys also did a, an annual event. Could you describe that? Yeah. Yeah. We called it, it was <laughs> a little cheesy. It was around, around Valentine's day. So that's kind of where the original name came from. And then it moved from Valentine's day. And, but anyways, it's called, this is love. It, originally it was like a dance ball, like fun kind of dinner night. And, uh, yeah, we, we did it every year for gosh, six or seven years. I did, did a lot of them. Mm -hmm. It's probably the most stressful time of the year for me. Yeah. 
running a nonprofit, but it was good. We raised a lot of money. So, And so that money from that event, would that go to the Legacy Fund? So the event, yeah, the event had a couple different models. Majority of the times it was to raise money for our Legacy Fund. Yeah, so we'd fly in Faith or eventually we had another partner in Mombasa we work with and his name was Peter. So we'd fly in one of them and they would speak and share about the work. But uh, yeah, we would raise money for our the operations because... You know, people knew if we didn't have operations, we couldn't raise money for our partners. But then we also, towards the end, switched it and did a few years of the banquet where we raised money for big projects for our partners, you know, so a big education initiative or thing like that. So it was a great event. And we had a couple models with what how we raised money at that event mm-hmm. changed over the years. There's one thing specific about the event that I want you to talk on and actually... Um, Travis probably would never say this, but he was <laughs> gracious enough to one year um, give me and my girlfriend at the time a couple of tickets to the event. And I was pretty broke, so I don't <laughs> think I would have had the money to dish out, which, you know, I definitely, um, uh, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, um, glad you were there. Yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. Saw some um, saw some buddies there, saw some, saw some characters um, there that I knew. But one of the things that was interesting about the event was the food that you guys served. Can you talk about that, the food choice? And do you remember what I'm talking about? Because it might have been different for different events. So if it you was. Help every you out, every you year help it was different. Out? Yeah. Was it a rice and beans? It was It was a rice and beans. Okay. Can you talk All about right. that? Yeah, yeah. I think one year we were, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm remembering that. It's coming back to me. Uh, yeah, so I think that year we had Peter, and I think, we, yeah, we were doing a big, that night we were raising money for a feeding program. And so I think we were trying to give folks an idea of what a good meal in Africa was. And it was rice and beans and simple vegetables, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we we're trying to kind of, you know, it's this kind of big fancy dinner and then serve, you know, instead of steak and Caesar salad, it was rice and beans. Yeah. Which is, which is a, a, a staple in a lot of parts of Africa. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think lots of parts of the world in general. Yeah. It's cool. You remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, I guess it uh, had the effect that we wanted. Yeah, yeah, it did. at least for you, <laughs> it, 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 it stuck with me. So, so you started No Think Act. Did you have a, a co-founder or someone that helped you start that? Uh, apart from, uh, I guess Faith um, uh, being able to ask her questions. Um, I mean, there was a whole group of us. You know, you know, obviously, you know, I was kind of the catalyst for that. But yeah, anybody who's ever done anything of significance, you know, there's no way you can do it by yourself. And so, uh, yeah, we had a whole team of folks who kind of were a part in the early days or, you know, as it progressed and grew, different people came on board and helped take different parts of it to the next level. So it's definitely a team group effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were a lot of these folks not staff or were they just people that come on and like kind of volunteer some of their time? Uh, both. A good buddy of mine who's actually my college roommate, Brady, he was an integral part of the whole organization. He eventually came on staff and I'm sure we'll get to it a little bit later in the podcast, but we ended up merging the nonprofit with another nonprofit here in town. He mm-hmm. actually still works for them today. Mm-hmm. He transferred over in the merger and still runs their IT and all their tech. And yeah, I mean, he was definitely backbone in the organization. So there's guys like him who were incredible and with me the whole way. So he was my roommate when I took that very first trip. So he was like, man, are you crazy? What are you doing? You're going to fly mm-hmm. over there by mm-hmm. yourself? And you never like, don't even know anybody. To he went on the very next trip with me in 06 when we were first kind of getting everything started and been on a ton of trips since then and ran all of our media and helped build our websites. And yeah, anyways, and then a lot of awesome board, you know, most nonprofits, uh, their board plays a pivotal role 
And this is board of directors, board of directors or an advisory yeah. board? Because yeah. I, I know it's a bit of a different. Can yeah. you talk about the distinction? Yeah, both. So, I mean, your board of directors have, you know, legal and fiduciary responsibilities, you know, so they're actually like responsible for. Yeah, legally responsible. Yeah, legally responsible for the organization and, you know, how you handle your finances and all that kind of stuff. So your advisory board is a little bit more unofficial, but uh, yeah, both. We've had great advisory. We had advisory board. We also had an actual board and yeah, a lot of amazing folks who played key pivotal roles over the years. Let's talk about 5013C. Did I say that correctly? 501C3. 501C3. Is it 3C3? Okay. Could you talk about, because you guys were a 501C3, Uh is that correct? Yeah, we were. And could you talk about what exactly that is and what that process looks like? And and why would a nonprofit want to become a 501C3? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, basically... The reason to get your 501c3 status is it basically gives you, you know, the opportunity for people to give to you and get gain tax exemption for their gift. Um, not everyone needs to be a 501c3 and there's, there's plenty, I don't, you know, I'm not a, there's definitely other, other, uh, categories that you can be for different like community foundations and different things like that. So, uh, a 501c3 is not the only categorization of a, of a organization that is out there. So there's definitely other categories that are better fits for different initiatives of what you're trying to accomplish. But 501c3 is the most popular and uh, usually the most effective if you're trying to raise money. And yeah, so it's, that's, you know, that's what we were. And it's definitely a very uh, complicated and can't take up to a year to get that status. We were fortunate. I think we got it in like four or five months, which was really fast. Uh, but I would definitely advise people to work with lawyers who that's what they do. Specialize. There's a lot of guys out there who specialize in helping organizations get their 501c3 status. Mm-hmm. That's some good advice. That's some good advice. I want to talk about Faith a little bit. Now, would you say that, in a sense, uh, she was a mentor to you? Yeah, I call Faith, Faith like my older sister. So, uh-huh. I mean, she was at my wedding and... Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, you I weren't marrying her though, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> man, uh, somebody else. But she, we flew. She flew out for my wedding, so she was here in Nashville when I got married, which is great. And where does she? Where is she based? She's in Uganda, in Western Uganda. So she flew all the way from Uganda mm-hmm. just for your wedding. Wow, yeah. that's yeah, that's deep, man. Yeah, I think obviously we probably had her go out to a few other places and raise some money while she's here. But uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, she was here for my wedding, which is great. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's she's like family to me, and obviously I've learned a lot from her. And I mean. The decisions she made in starting her nonprofit and the work she was doing, I mean, obviously changed the course of my life. And, you know, it's had a profound impact, not on me, but then, you know, you kind of have that domino effect when you make decisions to do those things that, I mean, hundreds of people literally have been to Uganda because of the organization we started. And and there's been multiple other organizations that have been started because of other folks around the world who've met her and started organizations to help her. So not only did she end up having a profound impact on her own community, she's had a profound impact across the globe with lots of folks. Yeah, that's really cool. So, so, so shouts out to Faith. Is it, what's the name of the organization that she's working with now in case folks want to connect with that? Yeah, it's called Bringing Hope to the Family. Her website's bringinghopetothefamily.org or bringinghope.org, I think is actually the URL. And if that doesn't get you there, folks, I'm sure you know how to Google. Now, did you have any other mentors in your life growing up whether in in your career or just growing up in general? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think uh, I've had quite a few mentors over the course of my life at various points. And whether, you know, I officially call them mentors or not, definitely played, I would say they were mentors and played key roles in, you know, me becoming who I am today. Mm -hmm. 
kind of uh, shifting back to No Think Act, how long did you lead that organization before you guys merged? Yeah, so we started it officially the end of 2000 or towards the fall of 2006. So November 2006 is when we officially started it, when we uh, created a actual legal entity. And then um, we ended up, I ended up rolling it into another nonprofit here in town, um, summer of 2014. Okay, so that's about eight years. What was your greatest challenge um, leading No Think Act? Oh, man. I mean, obviously, it's funny now, having been in the for-profit world as well. I mean, both. It's money. <laughs> money is the greatest challenge. <laughs> Whether you're running a nonprofit or a for-profit, cash flow is probably one of the biggest challenges, period. Mm-hmm. What are some of the best practices you learned around how to deal with that? Um, well, you know, I mean, with a lot of things, it's all about vision and then relationships and casting vision. And so whether it's a for-profit and you're trying to raise capital or it's a nonprofit and you're trying to, quote unquote, raise capital to, you know, build the structure and then then build raise money for the actual mission, um, you got to have vision and you have to cast that vision and build relationships with folks who have capacity to invest or give and get behind the vision that you have. Mm -hmm. So what do you miss most about not being there in no think act now? Well, I mean, obviously I really was moved originally by the, you know, the work on the ground and something I think a lot of people don't realize when they start who, who aspire to start nonprofits is the bigger it gets, especially if you're running it, probably the further away you're going to get from the actual work that you originally started out doing Mm -hmm. which was kind of part of the case with me but yeah i mean you uh you start very hands-on and then as an organization builds your focus turns to building and running that organization to do Mm -hmm. the work that you started it to do which is great but you personally are now you know eventually my pretty much my job was to raise money (laughs) full-time yeah 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 and obviously cast vision and manage people and you know set a course for where we're headed but yeah, I enjoyed all that, but at the end of the day, too, raising money, I'm not going to lie, definitely is not, not easy and was not my the thing I enjoyed doing the most. Mm. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, you had your, your legacy fund, you had your, um, your annual event. Generally, like, how did you go about raising money, like, on a day-to-day? Like, how did you get folks to invest in what you guys were doing? Uh, a lot of it was just one-on-one meetings, meeting with, you know, lots of individuals and casting the vision for what we were doing. You know, our website was big. We had really good media, really good videos, like really, uh, you know, at that point, technology for that kind of thing. I mean, people forget, like we have iPhones now that take this incredible video, but back in 2005, we were like shooting on mini DV tapes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember we actually have a, have a whole case, these little mini DV tapes, you know? So like, I remember the iPhone wasn't even out yet when we were taking yeah. those first trips, which is crazy. So, but over the years, you know, like the ability to produce high quality, you know, video and tell the story got so much easier and, and uh, you know, accessible from a cost perspective. And so that really helped. We did a lot of video which really helped people connect with the vision and the mission and get them on board. So yeah, a lot, you know, it's pretty much through our website and then a lot through just personal relationship, you know, and that just network grows, you meet somebody and then they introduce you to three or four people and you go meet, meet with those three or four people and they each introduce you to a couple people and, you know, I just keep spreading and I traveled a lot. So, I mean, we had bases of support I, and, and your board. So on a nonprofit, your board is big for raising money. You want to make sure you get folks on who can help raise money. So yeah, we had 
strong support in Nashville and LA, San Diego, Seattle area, all over the lot, a lot of different parts of the country and Nashville and Gulf coast where I was from when ended up going down there a lot as well. Mm -hmm. And were the folks on your board, were they all local or were they spread out? No, they were spread out. So I actually had a lot, I actually ended up having probably almost half my board was actually based out in LA and the other half was here in Nashville. And how did you meet the folks that were on your board? Uh, same, you know, you just, you start with a couple people you probably already know, or at least, or one person removed from who, uh, you'd think would be a great fit. And then usually great people lead you to other great people. And then it was funny. So, uh, a couple who was out in LA that I actually ended up meeting in Uganda. So they were actually out working with faith on their own, had met her through a series of events. And I was out there and we met and just hit it off and built a great relationship and ended up eventually asking them to be on my board. And they ended up bringing several more great folks who are out in LA onto my board as well. So, and what's that conversation like? Because obviously, and and I don't know if most of the folks you're asking, when you're asking someone to be on your board, if, if they realize that, Hey, this is, this isn't just an advisory thing. This is, this is serious is there's like a, a legal um, responsibility to the organization and to the community. So, both on their side and from your perspective, when you're sort of trying to pick someone for the board, is there, is there somewhat of a courtship first where you're, you're kind of hanging out and you're feeling them out and they're sort of feeling you out? And then do you just sort of point blank ask them, like, what's that conversation? What's that process like? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's usually like a relationship building standpoint because you definitely want to vet them. Your board of directors could legally remove you. So there is the chance that, you know, uh, you could actually start a nonprofit, get a bunch of people on your board and they could end up actually removing you completely from the organization. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's, you know, you probably have to be doing something really dumb for that to happen. But that being said, they do have, you know, not only do they have legal responsibility, they also have, you know, power as well over the organization uh, as a whole, as a board. And so you definitely want to make sure that you have the right people on your board. So yeah, it goes both ways. I mean, you want to vet them and you want to get to know them and trust them and know that they have a specific skill set that you need for what you're doing. Uh, not that they're just a cool person you want to hang out with, but they can actually move your mission forward and help you accomplish that. And then vice versa, you know, they you know want to spend time and usually people that you want on your board are probably really busy, probably have other people who want them to be on their board <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or want their money or want their time. So they need to make sure that it's something they're committed to and passionate about. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it definitely, there's a, you know, that process varies for different people in different circumstances. There was people I've, you know, had a pre-existing relationship with. So obviously what it took to get them on the board was a lot less than other people that I maybe just met and didn't know as well. And we usually had like a one pager that we would give folks eventually when we got to that point of like, Hey, here's what, you know, like you're really passionate about what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. Like, they've probably donated or have volunteered or kind of gotten involved on a volunteer basis or, you know, on a unofficial basis for a little bit. Um, and so usually kind of incrementally take it, you know, step by step, which would eventually lead to asking them to be on the board. But yeah, we would have a one pager that we would share with folks who we were going to ask that basically said, here's what, you know, here's how often we meet, how long we meet, here's what those expectations are of your time, of your resources. Some people on their boards, actually their board, the board member, each board member has to either give or raise a minimum amount of money. Mm -hmm. So it varies. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's some where it's like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars minimum and others, it could be like 10 grand or something like that. You know, it varies. So, um, every board has different stipulations of what they expect of their board. And then obviously too, we out, you know, we lay out 
also the the responsibility, not just the responsibilities, but also the liability that you can have as a board member. And so usually too, you have board, um, you can get insurance for your board, which helps protect your board from liability. So that might make them feel more comfortable about coming on on board, no pun intended. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now we've been talking about board of directors in order, and correct me if I'm wrong, in order to, when you're setting up a 501c3, right? And you're going through the application process, there's, the reason we're talking about board is because there's a legal requirement to have a board. Is that correct? in order to be approved for 501c3. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. And offhand, do you remember what's the number of members that you have to have on that board? Uh, gosh, it's been over 10 years since I got that. I believe it's at least two. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, I was working on could something. Be, I think it was, could it might be, be four. Three was the number I remember, but, but that might be like two plus you. I think you can be yeah. in that three. Yeah. But, that, probably, uh, that probably sounds right. So you can't have a tie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can't have a tie. But cool. I was just curious just to give, yeah, and, it, and, it, and so anybody who's thinking about that, I mean, they they it may still be the same, but just so you know, they change every year. Like sure. those things can change. So make sure you have a lawyer working with you if you're going to start <laughs> start something. You know. <laughs> so so fast forward to the merger. Now, why did you decide to merge with another nonprofit? Yeah. So along the way, actually, take a step back to kind of okay. get to that point. Sure. We ended up meeting a lot of local artisans in East Africa who were making baskets, jewelry, different goods they were selling in the market. And so we ended up starting a side project under the nonprofit called Red Earth and working with artisans to make jewelry and, and selling it here and raising money. And anyways, uh, so over the years that grew to <laughs> pretty much a whole nother brand. And the year before, around 2012, I turned 30. I was married, I had a kid on the way. And also during all this time, I was kind of dabbling in real estate on the side. So buying old houses yeah remodeling them and so anyways yeah 2012 was a really big year for me um turning 30 yeah i think a lot of people only turn 30 kind of take stock of their life or at least i hope they do (laughs) (laughs) and think about where they're at and where they want to go and so anyways for me i from the year we started no think act 2006 all the way to when we merged we grew every single year um and so, you know, that was continuing to grow. Red Earth 2012 was our biggest year. We had started that around 2010. That year we did seven pop-up stores across the country. We did two in Nashville, two in LA, one in Chicago, one in Kansas City. For Red Earth? For Red Earth. Okay, and, <laughs> yeah. and describe what these pop-up stores are. Are they only coming up, are they only popping up for like a week? No, or like they were what? popping up for like a month at a time. Uh-huh. So we go, we had big box trucks. We literally go in like a thousand square foot, 1500 square foot store and build out a full store and then tear it down and put it in a box truck and drive it to the and next would you place. Do, are you doing one at a time or do you have more yeah, than it was one, one team? At a time. No, it was one at a time. Yeah. Okay. How did those do? Oh, they did great. They did great. So yeah, so we we're doing that. We were doing, you know, running No Think Act. I was remodeling another house. So I'd do that at night and my wife was pregnant with our first kid. And so while all that was you know, from what I think a lot of people would say successful, it also, at the same time, I knew I wasn't quite as successful as what it could be if I was focused. If I was only doing one thing, I was spread extremely thin. And I realized that what I was doing was not sustainable in the long term. Um, had very little, I was pretty exhausted, close to burnout. And so, yeah, it was, you know, obviously, you know, life has that way sometimes of forcing you to make the hard decisions and decide what is it I really want to pour my focus into, my energy into. And so, over the years of running Red Earth and No Think Act side by side, even though Red Earth was under the nonprofit, 
I realized I enjoyed like a for-profit side of things a little bit more than the nonprofit side of things as far as running day to day. So I remember at this point, I knew what it was going to take for me to take the nonprofit to the next level was just basically full-time fundraising, raising Mm -hmm. a lot of money. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was getting pretty removed from the actual work. And at the same time, enjoyed running the for, it was not a for-profit business at that time, but running that uh, Red Earth project, which was more for-profit oriented. Yeah, I enjoyed that a little bit more. So he had just decided like, hey, I got to make some hard decisions here and I want to basically focus my life, simplify my life and be more focused on one thing instead of doing four different things well, but not as well as I could if I did just one. And so that led to over the next few years, obviously that's not something you just change overnight, but led to conversations about, you know, how do we steward this nonprofit that we started that's grown and, you know, was having a tremendous impact. So yeah, we were really fortunate. There's another great nonprofit here in town called African Leadership. They had multiple brands, Mocha Club and so we merged No Think Act with them in 2014. This is about a two-year process of finding them, building that relationship, and then legally uh, merging No Think Act into their brand. And then also in that process, uh, in beginning of 2014 as well, I bought Red Earth out of the nonprofit, <laughs> no, <let> me, <laughs> which probably sounds kind of crazy to it, some people. It sounds weird, right? Okay, so let me let me try to get this straight. So you're doing No Think Act. Nonprofit 501c3, and then Red Earth was a side project. Now, was that its own nonprofit or was that underneath the umbrella of No Think Act? Yeah, so you know, in hindsight, I would not recommend that people structure it the way that I did. So, if you have a for profit operating or own, technically, you can't own a nonprofit personally. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you are the board owns it, like, no, not one individual is necessarily like the sure. owner of it, but. If you're operating a nonprofit and a for-profit together very closely, uh, you can do that. There's no there's no problem with that, but you have to be very careful that there's no conflict of interest and that you're doing everything in what's called like an arm's length, you know, transaction, which basically means you're showing no favoritism. And anyways, it can get really complicated really fast and get hairy and gray really fast. And so to avoid that at that time, I just started Red Earth under No Think Act. And what were you doing with the profits from Red Earth? Yeah, so the, the vision at that point was to build Red Earth. It's what is called in the nonprofit world, non-business related income, mm-hmm. which means it wasn't donations. It was, you know, we're getting, like, so if a nonprofit sells t-shirts or water bottles or, you know, any of that stuff, that's non-business related income. And does that go to your operations? Exactly. So the legacy, so, yeah, what would so be the, the legacy so the vision, Yeah, so the vision at that point was that we would grow Red Earth to a point that the profit, quote unquote, profit from Red Earth would actually fund the nonprofit. Sure. And that one day we wouldn't even have to rely on donations, which I think is totally viable. It's very hard to do, but... Good, Goodwill does that, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely multiple models out there that have been successful with that. Multiple organizations have been successful with that model. And that's what we were headed towards. But yeah, so when I started Red Earth, the nonprofit actually never put any money into it. I had a whole bunch of product I'd bought outside of it and donated it. And then over the years, we just grew Red Earth from cash flow. So it's not like the nonprofit ever put money into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Red Earth actually paid for a ton of uh, No Think Acts expenses. Every time I traveled, Red mm-hmm. Earth paid for it. So we really weren't running it like a true for-profit business. It was getting definitely uh, taken advantage of. But because I had started it under the nonprofit, it was owned by the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And so I had to actually buy it out even though mm-hmm. I put the capital in to start it as a donation. And even though the nonprofit had never actually invest, you know, 
put money into it, it was still legally owned by it. So from a legal perspective, definitely was not the best route to take. It definitely cost me a nice little chunk and, of money. And, and why did you want to buy it out instead of, was it because your interests were changing? Why did you want to buy it out instead of continuing to use that to fund No Think Act? Yeah, because once again, it just got back to needing to focus and do one thing. One thing. Okay. And I wasn't running, I, number one, uh, the nonprofit was, yes, it was growing every year. And growing, I mean, good growth too, but not what it could be if I was only focused on the nonprofit because my time mm-hmm. was split. You know, like for instance, I, like I used that year 2012 as an example, like I did the banquet. We did, uh, you know, these pop-up stores all across the country. We did, I mean, we were doing so much stuff. Like, you know, it was just the first year of my daughter's life, I was gone six months out of the year, cumulatively, yeah. like on trips in Africa and around the country. I mean, it was just traveling. Yeah. And so- you know, in the same time as well, I wasn't running Red Earth like a true for-profit company. So it wasn't getting the full attention. And, you know, it was paying for tons of nonprofit stuff it shouldn't have been paying for if it was going to, you know, be profitable to grow, you know, have capital to continue to grow. A lot of times, you know, if you're in a for-profit company, you take your profits and just keep reinvesting them, you know, in those early to stages. Grow to grow that side of yeah, the business. Exactly. Okay, so yeah. you, it was basically paying for expenses that <laughs> weren't Otherwise, necessarily related to growing red they earth. Weren't, okay, okay. So, so it was actually preventing it from getting bigger. Exactly, right. Yeah. Gotcha. So it was still getting bigger, but just not at the rate that it could have. So yeah. So anyways, and I just realized I wanted to put all my focus into growing a social, you know, for-profit company, but still with a social mission, which was red earth. So a social enterprise, sure, you sure. know, is now what mm-hmm. people call it these days, which is kind of another wave of like, you know, that was starting to take off at that time too. So I yeah. feel like when I first started my nonprofit, there was this kind of emergence of a new kind of nonprofit. And then like when I started to want to gravitate to Red Earth, social enterprise was really kind of taking off and this new thing, you know, that people were talking about at least a lot more than they had in the past. Yeah. I mean, especially here. I mean, in Patagonia Nash- and, you know, those companies have been around for a long time, but it wasn't uh-huh. like it is now. Yeah, no, I definitely remember that vibe. Um, probably around like what, 12 or 13 when I was here in Nashville. Yeah, there was like a lot of folks starting uh, social enterprises here. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to Nice Solo in, in a minute, but I remember, I remember when those folks first popped up. Yeah. And you were doing your thing. I guess you were doing Red Earth. And then uh, there were some other folks doing nonprofit stuff. But yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff happening. Uh, it was really exciting and inspiring to see uh, so many people ordinarily would just be running businesses, but still having some sort of a social good or social aspect to them. Right. And I guess I know some folks are, are like really about it has to be 100 percent nonprofit. But I think I think the good thing about social enterprises is that and you were kind of hinting at this earlier and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of times they can just scale faster. Totally. And so even if, for example, I'm going to make random numbers up, you know, you could raise a million dollars for a particular nonprofit in a year to help some people. If you can take a for-profit business and scale it in that same amount of time to 5 million and then give, you know, a quarter of that away, you've exceeded what the nonprofit could do in terms of helping other people. So... Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I think nonprofits and social enterprise for profits are just two different tools. Sure, you know, um, and I think they serve different purposes, and I think they both are different engines, if you will, for accomplishing good. But yeah, you're totally right. I mean, the benefits of a for profit social enterprise is it's self sustaining, mm-hmm. whereas nonprofits, you know, you're constantly relying on donations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which can be can come and go. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So even a lot of nonprofits are trying to figure out ways to build 
even though it's not a for-profit entity, it operates like a for-profit, similar to how we're doing with Red Earth. So they, you know, they have a merch line or they have something that generates income that's not reliant on a donation. On donations. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, okay, so you merge No Think Act with, is it African? Yeah, African Leadership. And they're, and they're still around, right? They are. They now have consolidated all the brands. Uh, so they were. They had African Leadership. They had another brand called Mocha Club, which is like a monthly subscription model. And then they had us, No mm-hmm. Think Act. And they've kind of merged all of it now to just Mocha Club. So if you want to check them out, it's mochaclub.org. Mochaclub.org. Super cool. Yeah. And, and do they still, is their um, organization, is it similar to how yours was where you can scroll through their website and there's a ton of different projects. You see a picture of the... So their model's slightly different. They're more monthly based. That's the whole idea of Mocha Club. It's just like kind of give up the cost of a Mocha once a month to support projects. And so mm-hmm. it's still very project oriented, local leader oriented in different communities in Africa. But it's more, while with No Think Act, we were more kind of based on one-time donations towards a project. They're more based on monthly donations that are then aggregated to go towards different projects. Sure. And, and do folks on, on their website, are there um, at least, say, stories or projects, yeah. so, something that has an individual personal feel that uh, people can... Yeah, definitely. They have different profiles of different leaders in their communities and the projects that they're working on there. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. And when you merged, did you go to work for them for a bit? How, what was that relationship like um, post-merger? Yeah, so, so I, uh, well, obviously I was wanting to transition out. <laughs> obviously that was a big motivator for me, so... The goal was not to work with them. Uh, you know, I definitely want to continue to stay involved. And uh, I have a personal relationship with our partners in Africa and still do to this day. So actually, Peter, one of our partners is about to come over to my house yeah, uh, next week. Me. He's flying in. So, yeah, so that, you know, I, I don't necessarily need a legal entity to continue to have that relationship. So I, I was on a six-month retainer as an uh, advisor during that transition period. So, you know, help mm-hmm. transition organizations and do a lot of advising during that period. Like I said, some of our employees did transition over. Brady's the only one who's still there. He's working full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had another couple who has actually uh, worked in Eastern Uganda who worked with them for, uh, sorry, uh, Eastern Africa. They were in, in Uganda and Kenya as well. Worked with them for a little over a year. Mm-hmm. They're actually transitioning to a new organization. So yeah, multiple employees transitioned over. I was on a contract and then I was moving to focus on Red Earth full time. So sure. So yeah, so I uh, merged No Think Yak, but then I also, right before that, I bought Red Earth did you, out. Um, how did you come up with an evaluation for that? Yeah, for that so buyout? basically my board had to create a valuation for what the Red Earth piece was. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't like Red Earth was a multi-million dollar organization. I mean, we had done a couple hundred thousand, I think in 2012, we had done a couple hundred thousand dollars in sales. And then when I kind of made that decision and realized what, you know, that I needed to focus, I actually kind of shut Red Earth down for a little bit. Uh, we were still selling online, but I kind of shut it down behind the scenes. So sure. at that point we had two full-time employees. I decided, hey, at least for the next year, I'm just going to focus on a nonprofit so I can figure out how to transition this. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately that led to laying those two employees off for Red Earth. And, um, you know, we still ran it online, but we weren't doing all these pop-up stores and all those types of things. And so, yeah. So anyways, they came up with the valuation and Still wasn't cheap by any means. So had to be a fair market, you know, what we would have charged uh, if a random person off the street wanted to buy it. Mm-hmm. And, and did, it had and to be looked at it by a third party, which we did. And did you have to like get any investors or anything to buy it or did you just... Uh, no, was I was just fortunate cash to yeah. be able to buy it myself and 
So yeah, I bought that and actually invested a lot, a whole lot more money on top of what I bought it for into the company, which was great because that's another mm -hmm. thing. So that's another downside of having a, to have a, something that you're trying to treat like a for-profit and a non-profit is you can't raise capital. Mm -hmm. You can raise capital, but those investors aren't going to necessarily get any money back or so that was another reason to take Red Earth out of No Think Act and actually create a separate for-profit company was so that I could actually raise capital. But at that point, initially, I put my own money in. So I invested quite a bit of money into it and was starting to really focus on it and treat it truly like a for-profit business, which had a profound different impact than yeah. what I was doing before and also being able to focus on it exclusively. How fast were you growing that? Like once you pulled it out of No Think Act? Uh, I mean, it was, you know, it's funny because you mentioned these solo guys, which is kind of the next part of the story. Uh -huh. And I wasn't even focused on it for, I was only focused on it for about six months before the next piece of this story comes, which I basically merged Red Earth with Nisolo. Sure. <laughs> I was yeah. kind of on a merge. Man, uh, you're merging on a everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was, a, it was like a merge slash sale. So I kind of sold it. Did you get Technically it? I sold it, but, it, but we merged it. Yeah. I don't know if you can talk about, and I don't want to get into the details of the terms, but yeah. Um, was the merger, did you get, was it part cash, part equity or, or yeah. what was it like? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. So basically I had, personally invested a lot of money into Red Earth and was growing it. And that happened early 2014 at the same time, mm -hmm. just merged my nonprofit and did that six month contract as well on the side of merging that out. Yeah, I had been, so Patrick Woodyard is the co-founder and CEO of Nisolo, which they, he has a very similar story to mine. They work with artisans in Peru to make shoes really awesome, uh, high quality leather shoes. And uh, we had been really good friends since 2012. He had brought New Solo to Nashville from Oxford, Mississippi. And so for several years, we had an like, amazing relationship and I knew he had the same vision as me. We uh, were both passionate about uh, helping create jobs in the third world and just also having an impact on the fashion world in a positive way and really wanting to show that you could create a legitimate for-profit, healthy for-profit business that could do good and that you could make your products. The fashion industry doesn't have the best reputation about as how its products are made and how they treat the, the makers, the producers who actually make those products. And so I knew we had the same vision. And so anyways, uh, towards the end of 2014, I started, was kind of on the verge of like, all right, I, I need to take this next level again. I need to go raise money for investors. And uh, have always been one uh, who believes in partnership and usually more than one is better than one by yourself. And I was fortunate just to have built a great relationship with Patrick. So we had kind of had history. And so I approached Patrick and was just like, hey man, I, I know where you're headed with me solo. He was slightly ahead of us, you know, at that point and was doing some, you know, they had, they had made some good ground and it kind of shows that focus. You know, we were kind of, when we had started in 2012 on the same level and they, they had done amazing. And so, yeah, just approached him. I was like, hey, what if we did this together? And he was really, really excited about that as well. And so we worked out a great deal where, you know, I now have ownership in Nisolo and Red Earth is now part of Nisolo. So we, we strategically did not carry the Red Earth brand forward because we want to build one brand. Sure. But if you go on our website today, we... Uh, What's that website? It's nisolo.com. N-I-S-O-L-O.com. N-I-S-O-L-O.com. Yeah, so N-I-Solo, Nisolo. Mm -hmm. And it's a Spanish word, which means not alone. Mm -hmm. So that's the concept is like, we're not alone. Like we're in it together with our producers, with our customers, with, you know, 
really caring about the people behind our product and the people that we're selling the product to. Yeah. So it's been a great, I, I've loved it. So I'm now I'm a RVP of business development. So it's been awesome to be a part of this team. And my sister, who was our creative director at, at Red Earth, so she was our designer and all that is now our creative manager over at Solo. So she transitioned over with me. She was full-time with me at Red Earth and transitioned over and yeah, it's been great. So it's kind of been the next, I went, so I, I'm, I'm excited because I actually accomplished when I turned 30, I'll be 35 this October. So over the last five years, I went from crazy, lots of things happening to just one thing that I'm really focused on and really committed to and really loving and we're growing tremendously. And yeah, it was, it took a little while, but got there. That's cool. Yeah. Um, what year did those guys come over from Oxford? Was it 2012? It was 2012. Yeah, we uh -huh. were actually, so they, we were doing a pop-up store here in Nashville in an area called Hills, Hillsborough Village. For Red Earth? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, and I think you actually said you interviewed the founder of Fido. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There, it's a coffee Bob. shop mm -hmm. in Hillsborough Village and we were across the street from them, which is an amazing location. And we did two stores there actually. And they came in and we actually had them come set up in our store while we were at, I was out in Africa, but people were running the store, but we did a pop-up together. They joined us for a week. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Did a bunch of shows, had some artists come and play. So we, yeah, that was, they had just moved to town. We were, we partnered together and got to know them really well and just built that relationship over the next few years. And they started right at the end of the 2011. So. Okay, so so they were only in Oxford doing Nice Solo for what about a year before they oh, got here? Yeah, not, yeah, barely a year. They were kind yeah. of just getting going, yeah. and, and I think it's a bit um, ironic because you guys do make Oxford shoes as well, right? That's like we do, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's <laughs> yeah. interesting that that's where the origins um, come from. Tell me about your passion and your interest for just fashion and artisanship. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I wouldn't say I have a passion for fashion. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I would have like, you know, sat around like, hey, I want to start a business. Let me get into fashion. Uh -huh. I don't know that Patrick would say the same thing either. We just both, you know, happened. Patrick was doing microfinance down in Peru. So similar. He had a nonprofit for profit as well. He studied international business, but was very social, socially driven. And so he'd actually done some work in Uganda as well. Um, but he was down in Peru, you know, working in microfinance when he met William, who was a shoemaker. He was actually working with William's wife, who had a little uh, store, helping her manage her books and kind of working on her business. And anyways, yeah, so, you know, it really, we kind of started backwards. We, we actually met the people making the product and got passionate about the people and wanted to help provide uh, a market and just so happened to be fashion and shoes and jewelry. And we also are now doing leather goods and shoes also out of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And what are your leather goods? Uh, anyway, you know, purses, bags, wallets, uh, messenger bags, backpacks, weekenders, belts. Yeah. You guys got some good looking stuff too. Yeah, um, thanks. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how your stuff is made, your supply chain. Because I know that you guys have a social aspect. You were hitting on it earlier. Um, talk about how your stuff's made. Yeah, so all of our stuff's handmade. In Kenya, our jewelry, um, majority of it, is made from recycled brass uh, mainly. We've done a few, a little bit of aluminum, but it's mainly brass products, hand casted. It's an incredible process. It's mind boggling of what these guys can make with such limited resources that they have there. But yeah, beautiful recycled brass jewelry. Uh, down in Peru, all of our shoes are handmade as well. So, I mean, and they're incredible, super high quality. Um, and obviously with shoes, it's all locally sourced cowhides from that local mm -hmm. community from there in Peru. And then in Mexico, we've, we've diversified into Mexico to keep up with our growth. Our factory in Peru just could not grow 
fast enough to keep up with the growth here in the U.S. the demand that we had for our products. Mm -hmm. And also the the ecosystem, if you will, in Peru is not uh, Trujillo, the city we're in, is the is the, kind of the capital, the shoe capital of Peru. Like that's where there's like a hundred thousand shoemakers in Trujillo. But still, when you compare that to Lyon, Mexico, where we're also working now, you know, there's much bigger brands. So the ecosystem there, the factories, the tanneries that can support the growth that we're on the trajectory for, it's just we have to diversify into mm-hmm. other factories. But every factory we work with, we visit, we have a pretty stringent code of ethics that they have to adhere to. And just, you know, the way they treat their employees, the way they pay, you know, what they pay, uh, quality of the product. Um, just, yeah, there's quite a bit of stuff that we we go in and assess. But yeah, we've been really pleasantly surprised. I mean, there's some amazing factories in Mexico that we're working with now that just are awesome. We have a great relationship with who are making our leather goods and now some of our shoes as well. Mm-hmm. And so the, the social sort of aspect of your business is in your supply chain is is the makers and basically those ethical standards that yes. you guys uphold to yeah. that that most and not all companies you know that make um clothing are going to hold up to is that correct? exactly that's correct mm-hmm. yeah and obviously in peru where we own the factory we're able to go even deeper so we we host for instance a lot of none of our very few of our makers before they started working with us were, you know, a part of the banking system. You know, they mm-hmm. just had get paid in cash. They didn't have any contracts. Like, so they were, you know, a lot of them were in debt. And so we've helped them save, create savings accounts, get in the formal banking system, start saving money, start understanding how to manage money. And we do classes and trainings and teachings and all that. We also have them under contracts. So they're paid a monthly salary instead of just getting paid by in the shoe industry is per dozen shoes mm-hmm. that you make. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, it's very seasonal. So they have work, wouldn't have work, have work, wouldn't have work. So very mm-hmm. unstable. We've actually done like healthcare classes and like, you know, diet and nutrition, teach English. So we're able to get much more involved in their lives and provide a lot of, you know, benefits. Um, you know, and so with our other factory partners, you know, we maybe don't expect them to go that deep. Uh, that's obviously something we encourage, you know, and look for, but but definitely have other standards of just pay and the you know safety of the factory and the conditions of the factory and environmental aspects as well you know with mm-hmm. the factory what are some of those environmental aspects just you know making sure that number 1 they are moving in the right direction uh-huh. <laughs> everything's kind of incremental and yeah. so that you know with where they're at in the world and the resources that they have that they are uh, trying to adhere to the best practices that they can for where they're at. You can't go from zero to a hundred overnight and have it be perfect. But at the same time, what are they, what are they working towards? You know, and are they, a lot of times there can be basic practices that can make a big difference. You know, could you just describe what some of those practices are just at a high level? Yeah. So, I mean, just a full disclosure, I'm not necessarily over our supply chain. So it's okay, not, sure, 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 <laughs> I'm over sure. more sales and marketing, sure. but, but definitely obviously work with our, our small team that does that. But yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's just about, you know, various chemicals that are used, you know, making sure that those are, you know, mm-hmm. chemicals that we feel good about being in our product. And obviously when you tan hides, you know, there's Chrome and we, we try to do a lot of veggie tan, uh, which is a better process. Uh, it's a safer process. Uh, doesn't use as many harsh chemicals, but for shoes, veggie just doesn't really hold up as well over time. It does. Mm-hmm. There's more of it coming, but not for all of our shoes as far as like the sure. finish that you need. So for instance, we use veggie tan leather as much as we can, but a lot of that's our suppliers, what's coming from the tanneries. 
And, you know, same with us, you know, we still have a lot of room to grow in the systems that we want as well. So eventually we would like to, you know, put more pressure on tanneries and put more pressure on various suppliers to, you know, continue to improve their systems and processes. But one thing that people don't realize is to do that, you have to grow and you have to have like capacity and weight. (laughs) So if you're not, you know, if you're the smallest buyer from a tannery and you want to try to pressure them to change some sort of part of their system, you're not going to get very far. But if you're their biggest supplier and make up, you know, 50% of their sales and you start to say, hey, we want, we'd like you to do a better job at this, you know, that's important. And you're going to have a lot more weight, you know, to get them to actually make a change. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I want to ask you a question about Red Earth. You talked about it a little bit earlier, but now when you first started growing Red Earth, whether it was within No Think Act or after you sort of divested it or you bought it out, how did you go about getting customers and then growing that customer base? We we did not spend a lot on ads. We did a little bit, but not at that point, not a whole lot. We did have a customer base starting out. So that was a benefit of buying it from No Think Act because I could have just let it kind of die out and then started mm-hmm. a whole nother organi- you know, sure. another company, basically. Sure. I didn't necessarily have to buy it out of the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So the benefit of buying it out of the nonprofit was I was buying, you know, it came with a customer base. It came with a site that already had traffic. It came with people who already knew and recognized a brand and had bought product from a brand. So in essence, really what I was buying was the product that was on hand and then the goodwill of the Mm -hmm. brand itself. So, so there was that. And then, you know, we, we blogged social media, um, partnerships, um, with different influencers. And then we actually ended up doing a, uh, collection with Angie Harmon. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Who's that? She's an actress. Okay. Uh, her show right now is Rizzoli and Isles. I forget which network it's on. It's on cable. Mm-hmm. She was, uh, yeah, she was like a supermodel and actress in various TV shows. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. That was a big campaign that got a lot of awareness for How us. How did you get in touch with her? Like, uh, I have a good friend who's friends with her and he's worked with multiple celebrities and different folks. And so, uh, we worked with him, put together a deal with her and she designed a collection with us. It was the Angie Harmon collection. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. You guys still have that collection? Uh, it's sold out. So sold out. Yeah. Sold, sold out. On. Sorry, folks. Sorry, yeah. folks. Maybe on eBay. Yeah. It came out. It, that collection came out in early 2005, okay. beginning of the year. Like, okay. Like February 2005. Wow. Hold on. It was right before like, we merged with Nisola. 2005? Oh, sorry. 15. 15. I'm, I'm like, sorry. Geez, I'm, I'm like, hold on. I'm, drop, I'm dropping even, a decade. <laughs> I'm like, man. I'm like, did you even start No Think <laughs> Act in 2005? It's getting late. <laughs> yeah. 2015. To, to the, 2015. Okay. Okay. I got it. Got it. I want to talk a little bit about your role at Nisolo. Uh, yeah. What do you do as the VP of business development? Yeah. So I am, you know, I mean, technically my title could be sales and marketing, but I purposely, strategically, you know, we decided to keep me, have the title actually be business development just because that's, uh, I want to be forward thinking in the organization, very entrepreneurial in the organization. So yeah, I mean, Nisolo is still a young company. I mean, we're only, we're going to be six years old uh, this October. So when I kind of came on board, I mean, I'm trying to remember where we're at with employees. I think us joining the team, I brought over two full-time employees with me. So it was me plus two, so three. I think Nisolo at that point had in the U.S. Um, five or six full-time employees. It's funny, kind of like, it's been fun because Nisolo, the year before we joined, hadn't done a million yet. It was close to a million, but the year we went for the year before that in 2014, I did about 800,000 in sales. And then 2015, we did a little over 2 million. 
And it's Nisolo. As Nisolo, yeah. Nisolo, so okay. with Red Earth and Nisolo together. together yeah. Okay. yeah, the majority of that was Nisolo. That's crazy amount of yeah, growth. Yeah, we did a we did the first year with Nisolo, we did a Kickstarter for Red Earth jewelry just for a new a new collection as Nisolo. Um uh, we I think our goal was thirty five thousand and we raised that in less than twelve hours. Wow. And we ended up raising uh I forget the final number, but it was over a hundred thousand dollars for <sighs> The first jewelry collection from Kenya as Nisolo, uh, branded as Nisolo. Uh So that was fun. That was cool. But yeah, so a lot of it is uh, just building out the teams, building out the strategy for sales and marketing. And then also I'm over our creative team as well. It does like all our photo shoots and branding and um, just kind of helping make sure all those folks are communicating and talking. But it's really just about building those teams out and empowering you know, that those teams, those individuals and having leaders rise up who can hope, you know, eventually will be running that. And my goal will be to continue to move forward in the organization and building out the next opportunity to take the company to the next level as far as growth from a growth perspective. So right now we're almost hundred percent online. Do we have a showroom here in town, but everything else is online or through a online third-party partner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But eventually we may get more into brick and brick and mortar retail. So I have a few mm-hmm. more stores around the country country uh and then um wholesale is on the table at some point you know in the future maybe but right now we don't really do wholesale Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can plug this again at the end but yeah folks do want to check you guys out they can come into your your showroom right and buy and in nashville yes in nashville Mm -hmm. um cool and they can find that address on your website yep Yep, nisolo.com. It's on there or just google nisolo and or google nisolo and you can and also on your website they can order yeah order um, order stuff um Okay, so I want to kind of uh, change topics. If you feel comfortable, I was going to see if you could talk about your faith a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me about your faith. Yeah, well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yeah, my faith is uh, has been the center of kind of obviously how I live my life, but also, and I think is probably wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't because of my faith and the things that I've experienced through that. Uh, was a big part of my motivation to want to go spend my Christmas break at orphans in Africa instead of, you know, going to like Panama City and partying. Not that that's 100% wrong or anything, but <laughs> uh, yeah. different things I experienced, I guess, just uh, motivated me to be excited to want to go do something like that, you know. And then the same with Faith, just, you know, she's she's a person of faith as well. And that impacted her to, you know, honestly leave a life that she had tried to escape of poverty to go back to serve those people, which was a huge step of faith and by no means of the easy, an easy route. It's been extremely difficult. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's been about wanting to create things that basically kind of for me, a life mission is like creating good to glorify God and serve people love people. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of been a guiding factor for me from the nonprofit to the for-profit stage and still is to this day. Very cool. Yeah. And where did that start? Did you um, grow up in church as a kid? Is that kind of where you first got that from? I did. Yeah. My parents did not, but they both kind of um, came to have a relationship with Jesus and really being serious about their faith. And so I did grow up going to church, which is a huge blessing. And was also very fortunate to have parents that were the same at home as they were at church. Sure. <laughs> Which was good, uh, I'm hoping. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. No, they were very consistent and it wasn't a religious thing. You know, they truly lived what they believed. And obviously I was very blessed by that and have an amazing family. And yeah, so I, you know, I grew, obviously though, over time it has, it has to become your own. And so 
Mm -hmm. I also had parents who were willing to let me ask hard questions and do my own searching and make my own decisions and create my own faith. What were one or two of those hard questions? Oh, I mean, obviously I think you ask all the questions anybody who comes to faith asks. (laughs) (laughs) Is God real? I mean, you know, the list goes on. I don't think I have to. Sure. (laughs) I think most people will probably ask them, but no, I mean, for me, you know, obviously I don't have answers to all of them, you know, like perfectly. I don't think anybody ever does, but you know, I've just seen God at work in my own personal life and other people's lives, especially over the years in so many dramatic, amazing ways. I mean, times running the nonprofit where it was just like, you know, we desperately needed money for this or that and like had no clue where it'd come from. And a week later, without telling anyone, like a check would randomly come from some random person for the wow. exact amount that we needed um, multiple times, you know, or just, yeah, lots of different things from my childhood, even before the nonprofit things that just build your faith and just, you see how real God is and caring for others and for people. A lot of times, obviously you see that through people of faith. Mm -hmm. Is prayer something that's important to you or is it something that you do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think prayer is one of those things that you're always growing in and understanding what it means to truly pray and connect with God. And, but uh, yeah, it's definitely, I think an important thing in my life. And I think someone of faith usually. Thanks for sharing, man. One thing that um, really stood out to me about No Think Act when you were leading that organization was the sense of design that you guys had. And I think even the event that, um, that I was at when, when you guys were, were hosting one of your events, um, I think you guys were launching a new website at the time. Yeah, I mean, I just remember your, you know, all of your branding was really slick. Your, your, I think even No Think Act, something about it and how you guys did your logo was, was really slick. You know, your websites were always, uh, I felt like whatever the hottest design trend was at the time or slightly ahead of that, you got, you guys were there. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that, that eye for design and uh, if you, you know, how you fostered that, if you were like, uh, just you just happened to find a really good designer you partnered with or how did you get that eye for design? Yeah. Well, I think it definitely wasn't just me. I mean, we, we worked at some really good designers for sure. And then also just me, Brady, who I mentioned earlier, had a great eye for design who was on our team. We had a couple of just team members who just all were, yeah, cared about design. And we also realized that, you know, sometimes I think people can make the mistake in the nonprofit world of, well, it's not about design or it's not about this, it's about the mission. And which is true, but at the end of the day, you have to say, okay, but you also have to connect with people. You have to tell a story. You have to, yeah, connect with them and get them to to be memorable and, and that kind of thing. And so I think great design goes a long way in doing that which ultimately helps you accomplish your mission. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's something we've always been passionate about and, you know, want to be proud of not just the work we're doing, but also how we present that work. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I dig it. I dig it. And and um, props to you for a lot of the photo stuff. I, I mean, I've, I've checked out Nice Solo and yeah, a lot of your product photos and everything. I mean, they're, they're really slick. Um, yeah. I really dig it. Very well lit. Like, I mean, I do a little bit of photography myself, but yeah, they're, I mean, v- very good looking stuff, very on brand. So um, props to you for that. Do you like to read? I do. Are you reading anything at the moment? Uh, yeah, I just finished a book that probably seems kind of random called Necessary Endings. Okay. <laughs> so I meet with a group of entrepreneurs every week. We have like a little mastermind group, so we're always reading books. So <laughs> this one was a little bit uh, probably different, than that. but uh-huh. it's great. No, it's actually, it's actually a really, really good What's book that I'd recommend for anybody. It's called Necessary Endings, Necessary written by endings. Dr. Henry Cloud. Okay. Um, and it's just about, you know, 
ending things in your life. Uh, we let a lot of things just drag on that need to be ended. So, you know, he, it's great. I think it applies to people in business, like whether it's individuals or initiatives, you know, like you need to let somebody go or you need to stop an initiative or, you know, whether it's your personal life, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, and honestly, my whole story I'm sharing was kind of about, hey, being, being able to be honest with myself and say, if I keep doing this, I'm going to burn out and everything's going to kind of crash and burn. Or I can strategically make really hard decisions to like be honest with myself, decide what I want to focus on. And then over the course of, you know, a couple of years, figure out how to kind of release, you know, different things mm -hmm. that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. But no, it's a great book. Yeah. What's one of the hardest decisions you've had to make? Oh man. I mean, I think anytime you run a business, you know, if you have to let people go, that's always really tough. Yeah. How to do that. How do you a few do times. that? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, with compassion, but also with being very decisive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so being straight with them basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's no easy way to do it, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a part of, unfortunately, if anybody's been in business or in that world for a long enough time, it happens. So mm -hmm. we were talking about books a second ago. Um, do you have any favorites? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I actually really enjoy that necessary endings book. I think mm -hmm. it's actually a really good one for somebody who wants to get into business. I would definitely say it's a must read at some point, I think for anybody, but especially somebody who's going to get into management and, you know, we're working towards an executive level position. A couple other really good ones. I really love great by choice by Jim Collins. Great by choice. Great by great, choice. Great by choice. Yeah. He wrote good to great, which is more people know that book, uh, which is a great one. And I enjoyed it, but actually, um, actually like great by choice better. What do you like about it? So good to great was about him kind of rolling out what he saw that these kind of 10 X businesses did mm -hmm. what made them so much better than and what all do you that. mean by 10 X? they grew like 10 times bigger over a set period of time than okay. their peers. Okay, sure. So he was kind of saying, he called them 10 Xers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's what Good to Great is, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. But what I liked about Great by Choice is it was still about the business, but it was more from the angle of the leader of the business, about leadership. So it's more of a leadership book, which is really cool. And yeah, I highly recommend it. Another one that's really good, and I honestly, I'm spacing on the author, but it's called Essentialism. Okay. Um, it's also a really good book. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a must read. It just talks about, you know, really focusing on one thing. I mean, kind of an essence of the book is like, he's like, now that, you know, back in the day, we would say, what's your priority? Priority was singular. You can only have one thing that's a priority. And now we, say, we always say, what's your priorities? <laughs> Okay. Like you got plural. 10 priorities, which means none of them are a priority. So getting back to just focus, you know, do one thing, do it well, creating space. Yeah. 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 I like Anyways, it. I think those three are all great. Yeah. No, good. I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely interested in checking them out personally. And I'm sure other folks that are listening will be as well. Totally. You like to travel? I know, I know you said at one point you were on the road like half of the year. I do. I do. I've traveled a lot less lately. I mean, I have two kids now and it's actually been great. We still travel. Uh, I just actually got back from a trip Where we at? earlier this week. Uh, we were in San Diego, LA, and Santa Barbara doing the West Coast. What were you doing out there? Uh, conference in San Diego, and then my family flew out and met me, and we kind of, our designers are based out of LA, so I was mm -hmm. working out of there with them, and then just kind of working and playing together, had the family out with me, so it was great. Do you usually bring the family with you when you travel? Uh, not always. <laughs> That's, that was another part of merging red earth is I was, I mean, uh, this is the longest I've ever not gone to Africa. So from 2006, well, from that first trip in 2004, actually I've gone to Africa one to five times a year for over 10 years. 
all the way to 2015. Mostly Uganda or where else? Uh, Uganda and Kenya. And then towards the later years, mostly Kenya with Red Earth. With mm -hmm. Red Earth, all the artisans are in Kenya. So yeah, like I said, the first year of my daughter's life, which was 2014, or sorry, uh, actually 2013, I was gone like six months out of the year. So yeah. between traveling in the US, raising money and doing different things, and then going to Africa a couple of times, it was, it adds up. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So now, I, now, I mean, now, you know, we take family vacations, which are fun. And, you know, as far as work travel, I may be on the, you know, maybe away from home one or two weeks out of the year, maybe three, mm -hmm. which is and, great. And was family part of your decision to try to consolidate your projects down to one so that you could have a little bit more time home? Definitely. You know, when you're single in your 20s, you can work 12 hour, 14 hour days, which we did all the time. And then, you know, the business was in my house. And for at some point, we eventually moved it, got office space. But yeah, you know, you can live a different lifestyle and there's just different seasons of life that allow different things. And yeah, you know, at 30, married, having your first kid, you got to start making some changes and, you know, having a less, you know, obviously I still work a lot, but uh, you don't want to miss, I mean, you only get your kid's childhood one time, you know, you can't redo that. So you want to make sure you're present. Yeah. It's very cool. So at the time when you were traveling to Africa, uh, one to five times a year, and I'm sure you were doing other traveling, possibly around raising money and conferences and other things. What was your passport looking like? I mean, were you, were you, did you have, <laughs> did you have the thick passport, but you were still filling that up and having to file for other ones? Like, yeah, I definitely had to get the, most people don't know that, but you can get a fatter, you can get one with more pages than uh -huh. this typical standard issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely had a few year, I, years. I definitely had to get this, you know, trade in this, the regular one to get the fatter one. Did you ever <laughs> fill up a fat one? I don't know if I ever filled a fat one up, but I definitely filled up some of the normal ones and got a fat one and pretty close, but yeah, mm -hmm. definitely got a lot of stamps for sure. So you said that, um, your friend, is it Peter that's coming to visit you? In, yeah. In the next weeks? Mm -hmm. He's, is he Ugandan or is he? No. From... So we, yeah. So with a nonprofit, Faith was our main partner. And then eventually, as we were starting to work with artisans in Kenya, I met Peter. And so Peter's another incredible guy. And he became our second partner. Mm -hmm. And he had a um, organization called Action Ministry. And he was working with a leper camp uh, in Mombasa, Kenya, on the East mm -hmm. Coast. So talk about leprosy for a second, because I think some folks, they're like, you know, maybe if, maybe if you grew up around church, you might've heard that or heard a Bible <laughs> yeah. story about a, a leper. I don't think a lot of folks realize that that's something that's still a thing in some parts of the world. Can you talk about, do you know the name of that actual, the official name of that disease or is it just leprosy? Uh, I mean, I know it as leprosy. I'm sure okay, there's probably it's, it's some cool. other <laughs> medical <laughs> terms for it, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's still active in certain places. I mean, not like it used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and not quite as scary and contagious, you know, like as it used to be, sure. but yeah, I mean, part of Peter's story is there was a leprosy hospital back in, I think the fifties that they opened up in Mombasa and that's where from all over East Africa, from multiple countries, everybody brought their people with leprosy here and basically dropped them off and abandoned them and did not want to see them again. And then eventually as the leprosy was cured, quote unquote cured to where, you know, it wasn't contagious or, you know, they weren't having as many cases and it wasn't really as big of an issue as it had been eventually the hospital closed down mm -hmm. and a lot of these people like i said have been abandoned by their families and their families didn't want anything to do with them so they either a didn't even know where their families were or how to get back to them or some left and went back to their families and their families basically said hey we don't want you like get away so even after they were cured even after they yeah even after so a lot of them still had the wounds so the way leprosy works is it actually kind of attacks your nervous system mm-hmm 
what you lose feeling. And a lot of times with like your hands kind of, if you, if you've ever been around people with leprosy, their hands kind of crinkle up or, mm-hmm. and so you lose feeling and then you scrape, you cut yourself or you burn yourself and then it gets infected and your skin kind of like, you get a lot of wounds. And so then it doesn't heal and then it rots and it, it spreads. And so it's not necessarily the leprosy itself that actually like makes your skin rot and fall off. It's because it affects your nervous system mm-hmm. and things that actually create wounds that, you know, it's kind of like AIDS. You don't die from AIDS. It affects your immune system and then you catch sure. a cold, which actually kills you. Sure. And leprosy is kind of similar like that. And so anyways, a lot of these people, you know, are missing legs or feet or hands or fingers or, you know, different things like that. So while there still are not necessarily new people like catching it and they're not necessarily contagious. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people are still very afraid. There's still very much, you know, a stigma to be around them. So anyways, a lot of them came back to the camp because that was their community. Those are the people they knew. So Peter lived in Mombasa City. The camp was south of the city and actually met a guy begging on the street, asking for money for his kids to go to school. And Peter was like, sure, I'll give you money, but I'd like to go meet your kids first. So he actually brought him down to the camp. And anyways, he discovered this camp and realized that at that time it's called Tomb Bay, which means a place for rejected people. And anyways, he built a rapport with the folks and really started helping them and rallied his local community around the camp and renamed the camp to Blessed Camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is pretty powerful, just renaming the camp to literally now the surrounding communities and everybody knows it as Blessed Camp, mm-hmm. not what it used to be known for. Uh, started a school, started a medical clinic, started feeding programs, uh, and he started, yeah, his organization. So I met him around 2008 and started working with him since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and just doing incredible, incredible work there as well. So Very cool, man. Doing a lot. Doing a yeah. lot of stuff. Yeah. I can see why you were getting close to burning out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are you excited about right now? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, New Solo, definitely. I mean, we're, it's just a really fun time, you know? We're scaling, growing, uh, and it's just a different phase of business that I've never, none of us in the company have ever been here before. So we're learning it day by day. Um, you know, we're out of startup mode. We're out of, hey, is this actually going to work? Like, do mm-hmm. people really want this? Is it possible? Yeah. And now it's like, hey, how do we go to the next level? You know, how do we. Mm-hmm go from, you know, we're 10 plus employees to 20, you know, how do we go from, you know, a couple million dollars in sales to $10 million in sales to 20 million, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we're kind of in that phase, which is, which is really fun and exciting. How do we diversify into more factories and expand our product line and all those things, you know? So, so how are you doing some of those things? Like, for example, are you guys taking on more investor money or have you taken on investor money in the past? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're closing out a round right now. So raising, uh, our first round of investment, which is great. So that'll be, you know, really be helpful as far as growth. Yeah. You know, just putting a lot of, you know, a lot of it's basics. Mm-hmm. We're e ecom company, so build your email list, sure. build your social, we're running paid, got a great affiliate program coming up, working with influencers. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's about your product, you know, you got to get your product right. Mm-hmm. You have good product. Product isn't the end all be all, but you can do marketing and sales all day long the right way. And if your product isn't good, you're, you know, you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. You guys hiring right now? Are you about to? Be? Uh, not right now, but we definitely mm-hmm. will be probably hiring some, you know, over the course of this year going into the next year. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Trying to keep our team as lean as we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, keep those costs down, man. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you, what's um, can you think of any really good advice that you've gotten over the years? It can be related to any of the businesses that you've started or just general advice. Yeah. 
Oh man, that's a hard one. I've obviously gotten a lot of great yeah, advice over the years. It doesn't have to be the best because yeah. I know it's hard to say rank. Sure. What's the best? Sure, you know? sure. So if there's one or two things that pop out at you um, that you want to share. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I'll just share one because I think it's the most important that I've gotten from friends. And I mean, I've just gotten it in different forms. I mean, I've gotten it through listening to different podcasts mm-hmm. uh, and hearing other entrepreneurial stories. And but, before we get into it, what podcasts are you listening to right now? Uh, well, I listen to a lot of real estate podcasts, but probably one of the, one of the ones that's more general that I'm enjoying is uh, How I Built This NPR. Oh, that's such a good with Guy yeah. Ross. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's it's really he's good. such a good interviewer. Yeah, he really is. They mm-hmm. just know how to put that together so yeah. well. But yeah, I mean, I think my advice is just, so actually speaking of how I built this, it's all around the specific theme of basically, I think um, the thread that ties success together is just tenacity, determination. Mm -hmm. They've done studies where, you know, you know, it's not who's the smartest, it's not who has the most money, it's not who's the most connected, but just being determined. And actually on how I built this, they just, I just listened to one the other day as the guy that started five hour energy. I can't remember his name, Mm -hmm. but he was kind of sharing the same advice. And basically he said, you don't need to be passionate about something. You need to be determined. Uh, he goes, cause people always talk about being passionate. And he goes, problem with that is when you fall down and gets, you know, beat up because business will knock you down mm-hmm. time and time and time and time again, you got to get back up. He goes, a lot of times people lose their passion because yeah, they're like, well, this isn't fun. I'm not exactly passionate about this anymore. So he's like, it's more about being determined, you know, like I'm going to, uh, no matter what, how I'm feeling or not feeling, I'm going to get back up and keep going at it. So I don't know. I think that's what I've seen. That's what I've experienced in all the things that I've done and in Nice Solo. I mean, it you're going to get knocked down day after day after day after day after day. And no matter where you're at, whether you're just getting started or you're at $100 million, I mean, there will always be the next challenge right around the corner that you have to overcome, period. Uh, and that's just life. And that's also part of the fun of it, you know? Sometimes it doesn't feel so fun in the moment, but I think if you're an entrepreneur, that's part of uh, the journey is your problem solver. So how are you going to solve the next problem that comes up to get to the next, the next level? That's good advice, man. Let's say that there's someone out there listening and um, they're really excited about a particular problem that they want to solve or a business idea that they have. What advice would you give to that person? Uh, I would say uh, share it talk to friends, you know, when it comes to the for-profit world or sorry, the nonprofit world, I think I would see, is there a way for you to get involved or help solve that without starting another nonprofit? Mm -hmm. I think that's the best approach. And I think you should try your hardest not to start another nonprofit, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And why is that? Because there's probably already multiple people doing what you're passionate about. And so for me, even when I when I first was thinking about starting one, I actually went and met with multiple nonprofits. And it's funny, the one I ended up merging my nonprofit with was one of the first guys I met with. Uh, <laughs> I thoroughly had interviews and it was only until I finally realized like, hey, I could get these other nonprofits to maybe do a project with me, but I couldn't get them to partner, at least at that time, with faith on the level that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. So definitely not like trying to discourage anyone from starting one, but basically at the same time, I think there's a lot of times where you could accomplish a lot without having to start a whole nother organization, especially in the nonprofit world, because so much energy and effort and resource goes into the actual organizational part of it. If there's a way to piggyback on something that already exists or come in and help support something that's already in existence, that's focused on what you're passionate about. I think that's, that would be my first you know recommendation and encouragement to someone. 
And then after that, if you realize, hey, there is a void here, there is something that's missing to accomplish and solve this need or to meet this need, then take those steps to starting something new. And the same in the for-profit world, you know, I think, I don't know, I think the first step is just getting something out of your head and starting to share it with folks around you. Obviously, that can have a negative effect too, because sometimes maybe you see an opportunity and others don't. So you got to be careful with that. Don't let people get you down with an idea. But then the for-profit world. What do you mean by that? Like people being discouraging or people stealing your idea? uh, Well, I guess both, Uh, Uh but, but more so being discouraging. I don't think there's too, overall, I think you don't really have to worry too much about people stealing your idea. Ideas are easy to come by. Actually executing and making it happen is a whole lot harder. But in the for-profit world, what I would say is how can you test your idea as quickly as possible with as little resource as possible? Like, uh, you know, I'm sure people have heard, you know, minimum viable product, you know, how can you create that and test it really quick? And you got to be careful too, because, you know, if you just ask people, Hey, I really think it's a cool product. Would you buy it? Well, there's a difference of people saying, sure, I'd buy it. And then saying, Oh, would you buy it? It's $10. Do you want to buy it right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and actually buying it is one thing. So the sooner you can actually create even a, as close to a, you know, a replica of what that product would be, if it's not perfect and actually try to sell it or try to get people to exchange money for the service, the better before you fully commit to going all the way down that road. And there's a lot of ways to, to try to accomplish that and test, basically test, you know, mm-hmm. before you fully commit. Mm-hmm. Cool. Travis, it's been a pleasure. Before we go, I do want to, and we mentioned this earlier, but if folks want to learn more about Nice Solo um, or they're interested in checking out some of the products, where can they do that? Yeah, it's at nisolo.com. So N-I-S-O-L-O is how you spell it, nisolo.com. Okay. Yep. And do you tweet? Are you online? Are you on the socials? <laughs> uh, yes, I am. I have a Twitter, a Facebook, and Instagram. It's just my name, Travis Gravette, all of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I am not very active. I do not tweet at all. I don't well, know. Why less. is that? I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, well, I've never been a huge social media person mm-hmm. in general ever since it, I'm, I'm kind of like right in between like generation X and millennial. So uh-huh. I'm kind of on the fence, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a flip phone all the way through college. <laughs> oh yeah. I had, I had one too. <laughs> I held out on an iPhone for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, uh, no, I think social media is great. And obviously I use it a ton for business. I've always seen mm-hmm. the power and have very active, like from a business standpoint on a personal level, I just haven't really had the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Instagram from a personal level is what I probably look at and Mm -hmm. post the most, but even that I'm not crazy active on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, honestly, I'm there, but I don't know the last time I even opened the Twitter app, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, check me out hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, even Facebook. Yeah. I'm I'm making, he's up there. If you guys want to stalk him, he's there. He he might not respond because he's out there changing the (laughs) world. Don't hate me if I don't respond to you. Don't hate him if he doesn't respond, but, um, Look, man, it was a real pleasure. I yeah, really appreciate your time. It. It's always fun hanging out with you. And um, yeah, man, look forward to uh, the next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, for sure. Hey, guys, real quick before you go, I just wanted to let you know that you can find notes for this episode on our website, which is thestoriespodcast.com. The show notes include links to people and resources mentioned in the episode and occasionally some pretty awesome quotes. There's also a place to leave a comment if there's anything you'd like to say. Or you could write your thoughts as a review on iTunes. And if you do leave a review on iTunes, I just want to let you know I really appreciate it. 
It really helps create more visibility for the podcast. So thanks. Oh, and one more thing. If you do leave a review on iTunes, please put your Twitter handle at the bottom of your review. I've been known to occasionally send thank you tweets out, but no promises. See you guys next week.